Sometimes I write uh, poetry, uh, lyrics, you know, just, just in my spare time. I can try them out on y'all this morning. Just, uh, just close your eyes, and, and I'm going to paint a picture for you here, okay? Chestnuts roasting on an open fire. <laughs> Jack Frost nipping at your nose. Yuletide carols being sung by a choir and folks dressed up like Eskimos. Everybody knows. A turkey and some mistletoe help to make the season bright. Tiny tots with their eyes all aglow will find it hard to sleep tonight. It just, it just came to me. Um, no, so, okay, so now I don't actually know who wrote that. Some of y'all who, who's, you know, sharp in Wikipedia, you can find out. But Nat King Cole is the one who made it famous, and when Nat starts to sing those words, he paints this picture for us of a perfect Christmas. I mean, top to bottom. And y'all, it never fails for me, because I love Christmas, and I love Christmas songs, that songs like that, they, they, they paint for me how I envision Christmas ought to be, and my expectation of what Christmas will be. It just never fails, right? Except for the Jack Frost part, I mean, you know, it's going to be like 77 degrees Christmas Day here. But otherwise, right, this is, I mean, the warmth and the music and the sounds and the smells, all of it just, just, it just, it makes us feel good inside. That's why those songs are so famous and so beloved, right? But there's also something I think it's okay for us to admit, certainly in church, we're here to tell the truth one to another and to acknowledge the truth about ourselves there's always a sizable gap between the ideal Christmas we envision and the real Christmas we actually experience, right? That there's always a lot more stress, potentially a lot more conflict than we hope for at Christmas time. Stuff is way more expensive than what we planned, right? Or stuff's harder to find, or it's not going to be delivered in time in the mail, right? And that causes all sorts of issues and stress and grief, right? Some, some of us overcommit ourselves this time of year, and we just can't say no, and everything sounds so fun until it's actually on the calendar and the day comes, and we've, we've so overwhelmed our calendar and our energy that we can't really sit and enjoy anything. And we, we spend the whole time feeling bad about letting everybody else down. Uh, and the truth is, y'all, if, if you're feeling lonely or if you're experiencing grief, Christmas time can be the hardest time of year. Uh, it, it can actually amplify feelings of loneliness and grief rather than, uh, than, than somehow solve our difficulties. Now, I'm not saying all this to be a downer, okay? I promise. I'm just, I want us to acknowledge how we all feel. There is a certain sense in which this season brings about uh, melancholy, unmet expectations, unfulfilled hopes and dreams. Because on this side of heaven... And this is true for Christmas, and it's true for every day of the year, right? On this side of heaven, there's always going to be a gap between the ideal and the real. Things are not as they ought to be, and that's true even this week, even during the most wonderful time of the year. But maybe this year, if we're willing to acknowledge that, if we're willing to just say, okay, there is a gap between the ideal and the real, maybe that would actually be to our benefit. Because maybe then we would actually get a little bit closer to the center of what Christmas really is, what it actually means, and what it's all about. Y'all, this is not, uh, Andy mentioned this a minute ago, it's not a season of wish fulfillment. 
as much as we want it to be. It's not a season of wish fulfillment where there's no stress and everybody gets along and our circumstances fall just right and we all get the gifts we wanted with no need for returns or exchanges. We can eat whatever we want. Calories don't count. In my mind, I make that list. I say, that's the perfect Christmas. Yeah. But see, all those things are circumstances and they're only circumstances. Y'all, the good news of Christmas is not sweet circumstances. The good news is the gift of life that God has freely given us in himself. God and sinners reconciled. That's the good news that we celebrate, a good news that transcends our circumstances, even at their very best, and certainly at their worst. God has given us something better. He's given us himself. Now, now this is not a typical Christmas scripture, but when the Apostle John begins his first letter to the church, 1 John, he gives us a very clear sense of what it means for Jesus to become human and how precious that truth is to us. Listen to what John says. Now, this is first-hand eyewitness testimony here. John says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at, touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life was manifested and we have seen and testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the father and was manifested to us what we have seen and heard we proclaim to you also so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the father and with his son Jesus Christ now, that's a, that's a Christmas text right there. John says Jesus is the word of life, and he was manifested to us. He was made real to us. The word became flesh so that we could see him, and John says even touch him. We could touch him. He was that close. God came that near, and so now we proclaim him to you. Now, if we think about the, what kind of cheap substitute would it be if God, this time of year, if God simply sprinkled some sweeter circumstances on us to increase our happiness, you know, to end the year, when instead God has given us eternal fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. Some of us, if we're honest, maybe in, in my you know, less noble moments, I might take the sweeter circumstances because I like the things I can see and feel and touch myself. But John says, no, we have seen him. We have held him with our hands. The word of life has been given to us. And now you can have fellowship with him. How much better a gift God's given to us. And so at Christmas time, God is not saying to us, May your days be merry and bright, and may all your Christmases be white. That's not the message. The message is, I give you life itself by giving you my son. And so, y'all, as we look further into the Christmas story, the accounts given to us in the scripture today, as we look at Luke chapter 2, one thing I want us to notice, in, in the midst of all the glory and promise and beauty and grace, we don't see sweet circumstances here at all. In fact, what we see at ground level is pretty obscure and even icky and not at all impressive. But through these difficult circumstances, the overwhelming joy of the light that God has given 
in sending Christ into the world. All right, so look with me at Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 6, this all-familiar story. While they were there, this is Mary and Joseph, are in Bethlehem. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, Luke states this so matter-of-factly that we, we almost miss the shock of it. And again, if you're, if you're familiar with this story, most of us are, then we, we become numb to the shock of what's taking place here. The fact that Mary and Joseph had nowhere to stay, no warm place, no sanitary place in which to give birth, Nowhere suitable for baby Jesus to lay his head? They put him in a manger. That's a feeding trough for the animals. Whatever grand, you know, clean, buttoned-up visions of the nativity we might have because of art or because of what we put on the mantle, it was not like that at all. It was dark. It was dingy. It was remote. and, And frankly, probably pretty ugly. Uh, you know, I mean, if, if, now, by comparison, now, and I've, I've used this before. I think this helps me to, to consider the contrast. Imagine the royal couple, Harry, Larry, Pippa, whatever their name, you know what their names are, right? Imagine the royal couple, uh, pregnant, preparing to give birth, and so they've got it all lined up. They're going to receive a, a, you know, a, a you know, they're going to go in a, you know, I don't know, there's police escorts and everything to the finest hospital in London or wherever. And they show up and the hospital turns them away. Beds are all full. And the royal couple, in this strange twist of fate, has to go out back behind the hospital and give birth to their baby next to the dumpster. Now, even as I just paint a picture like that, you, you probably recoil from the thought of it. Just how humiliating, how miserable, how disgusting that would be, especially for someone like them. I mean, nobody should have to endure something like that. Nobody, no matter how low they are on the ladder, should be subjected to that kind of humility or humiliation, better yet. Nobody should have to to endure uh, such uncleanliness uh, and shame. But y'all, that, I mean, we're reading it right now. It's Luke chapter 2. This is basically how the Son of God comes into the world. And we need to keep in mind in this case that it's not a strange twist of fate for Mary and Joseph and the baby Jesus. This is precisely how God intended it. This is all according to plan. None of this is an accident. If we recall, if you were with us last week when we spoke from Luke chapter 1 about the fact that God sends the angel Gabriel to the backwoods town of Nazareth to a nobody named Mary, to declare to her that God is going to bring his own son into the world to save his people, and he's going to bring him through her womb. God is not interested in scoring style points with us here. At no point in the Christmas accounts are we really given anything that's meant to impress us or satisfy our sense of human pride or, frankly, even dignity. There's not a lot of dignity going around in this story because that's how God orchestrates it. God 
uh, sheds his grace upon the unlikeliest of people in the unlikeliest of places, and he does it in a way that we would have never scripted out. And so this feels right here about as low as we can go. Baby in the manger, no room for them in the inn. It actually gets even worse. If you take a look at verse 8, watch how the account unfolds now. In the same region, Jesus has just been born, but in the same region nearby, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were sore afraid, Linus said. They were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Now finally we get some glory. Finally we see some bright and shining angels, the heavenly hosts. Right? This is more like it. This is what we would expect. But you see, even here, we're struck by the circumstances. We ought to be. To whom is the glory being revealed? A handful of shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. Y'all, whatever romantic ideas we might have about shepherds, you know, Jesus called himself the good shepherd. King David began as a shepherd. We need to put the romance aside and acknowledge reality. Y'all, these shepherds were not men of reputation. They were considered low down. Uh, they would have almost certainly been poor, dirty, and illiterate. And they're out in the fields doing the dirty work of tending the sheep. When? By night. While the rest of the world sleeps in preparation for the day of work that's ahead of them, they're doing the work that goes completely unseen, unnoticed, and unappreciated. Keeping watch by night while the rest of the world sleeps. There's a void here, a darkness, not just a literal nighttime darkness, but there's something here that just should strike us as, as undignified. And yet this is the place, and these are the people to whom the Lord of glory breaks through. You know, if God wanted to make known the coming of his son, the most important thing that's ever happened to this point in world history how would he have gone about it? I mean, what kind of people would be the most likely recipients of such a significant message? God, I mean, again, if we were scripting this out, God would have started in the palace with the king, with the emperor, the number one man, the guy that would need to know before anybody else. Or at least God would go to the temple and deliver this to the priests, or maybe God would go to the synagogue, to the rabbi, somebody capable of taking this information and holding the weight of it and then disseminating it to the people who need to know. Or at the very least, God could have brought the angel to hover above Jerusalem, the great city, where there would surely be a captive audience ready and willing to receive the good news. But why doesn't God do those things? 
you know, maybe if we're, if, we're, I mean, if we're looking at it from a very earthy perspective, we might think, well, God's just not that good at marketing himself. If God were in marketing 101 at Ole Miss or State or Southern, he'd be sweating it out come finals. All right? he's, he's not a very good marketer. Jesus wasn't either. Constantly driving the crowds away with hard teaching, you know. What's the deal here? Well, this, y'all, this is a point that we've tried to make every week of Advent. I'm not, I'm not going to belabor it, but it is worth revisiting because I, just, I feel like it just shows up time and again. Think about what God is communicating here. This is not just an account of history, although it is. The, the circumstances around the birth of Christ are meant to communicate meaning to us. That all throughout this story, God is taking the lowest people from the lowest places, and God is coming down low to meet them there. He's not demanding that we rise up to some superhuman level to make ourselves worthy of him. He's the one meeting us where we are in the darkness, on the bottom rung. And craziest of all, God brings forth his own son, his own dear son, Jesus. Through a virgin's womb, laid in a manger, his head resting in a feeding trough. Y'all, what the Christmas story aims to tell us is that God does not call you and me to be upwardly mobile people in spiritual things. God is not communicating to us how we can rise above our sin and our circumstances and become something great. And once we've reached a certain level of greatness, God will meet us there and we can discover our best selves and live our best lives. That's not Christmas. That's not Christianity. Christmas is the story of God coming down to us all the way to the bottom, of God taking on, in a very real way, our weakness, our poverty, our pain, our obscurity. He takes it for himself in the person of Jesus. And so it's okay on Christmas, it's okay for us to acknowledge together what we really are apart from the intervening grace of God. We are weak. We are poor. We are lost. We're sinful. We're incapable of climbing any ladder by which to save ourselves. But in the great love of God and in his mercy, he's come down low to meet us where we are. And y'all, what that means at Christmas, what it means every Sunday, what it means every moment, awake or asleep, there is nobody beyond the reach of God's grace. There is no one so obscure, so unseen, that God cannot see and love and shed his grace upon them. There's no one so sinful, God simply cannot forgive. And maybe for you today, you need to hear that for yourself. You may need to hear it for somebody you care about, that you want to give up on or write off. Nobody, no matter how low down, is too low for the grace of God to reach. And so if we recognize, hey, this is what Christmas means, then stuff makes sense to us. I mentioned this last week. It makes sense, given God's heart, that Mary and Joseph would be the ones tasked with birthing Christ and raising him up. A bunch of nobodies. That places like Nazareth and Bethlehem would be the showcases of God's glory. That people like the poor shepherds would be the first ones to receive the invitation. 
Those who are considered outsiders are now brought in. Those who are low down are being raised up. That's what grace is, and that's what grace does. God and sinners reconciled. And see, this is the good news. It's not just that Jesus is born, but it's why he's come. Look look with me at verse 10 again. We'll read what we've already read. But just highlight a few of these key words here with me. The angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today in the city of David there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Notice how the angel instructs them, let your great fear be turned to great joy, because there's good news. And the good news is for all the people, the angel says. Today there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, I want all of us, to the, I mean, to the best of our ability, to sit with that precious proclamation and just let it enlighten us. I know you've heard it before, but we ought to just bask in the light of this wonderful good news. God has brought good news for you, the angel says. God has brought a Savior For you, what we could never do on our own, God has done for us by his mercy and grace. Now, if that doesn't stir you up, as it should, then I want to invite us this morning to take a cue from the angels in heaven. How do you think the angels felt about this good news? Now, surely they were privy to this up in heaven in the presence of God. Surely they knew about it. If anybody would, it'd be them. And maybe this was even old news for them. They've known about this for a long time. And yet they are constantly in awe. The angels are in awe of what God is doing in this moment. Do you see it? And suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he's pleased. The angels for all eternity will never get over the gospel of God's grace given to us. Peter says that later on in the scripture. Angels long to look into the beauty of the good news that we've been given. And so what do the angels do? They point upward to God's glory where it belongs, but then they turn their direction downward to us, to the recipients of God's peace. And y'all, just to be clear, the kind of peace we're talking about at the Christmas season, peace is a very popular word, both religious and secular. Certainly there's a kind of peace that we're meant to enjoy one to another, the peace that means we all get along, and that is right, and that is biblical, and it's good. But the peace in mind here, I believe, is the peace that we're given with God, which is the ultimate and most necessary peace before any other peace can be had. Romans 5 tells us that we who are justified by faith in Christ now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because God has sent his son for us, 
We are now reconciled to him. We can have true relationship, peace with God forever. That's the message given to the shepherds and to the world, to us. Now, I mentioned this ought to stir us. And and for me and you, my hope this morning would be that that as we enjoy this good news and, and take it to heart, that it would not just remain dormant somehow with us. Keep this in our hearts till next year. But that would actually spur us to something tangible, something real, to action, to a new way of life, as it did for the shepherds. How are the shepherds going to respond? Do they just go back to tending their sheep? How could they? No, look at verse 15. When the angels had gone away from them into heaven, the shepherds began saying to one another, let us go straight to Bethlehem then and see this thing that has happened which the Lord has made known to us. So they came in a hurry, found their way to Mary and Joseph and the baby as he lay in the manger. When they had seen this, they made known the statement which had been told them about this child and all who heard it wondered at the things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary treasured all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds went back, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, just as had been told them. So the response is urgency, hurry, amazement, worship, even evangelism, an eagerness to share, to tell, to report everything they had experienced, all that they had been told, they wanted to make it known to everyone else. And y'all, everybody in this moment who is part of this little conversation is just awestruck. No one can believe what's taking place here in this remote stable, perhaps, in the middle of nowhere. And y'all, this is something that fascinates me, and so I want us to to be clear on it. At this point in the story, no circumstances have actually changed. I mean, if we think about it like this, the, the, the poor shepherds are still poor shepherds. And at the end of this, they just, they go back and they tend their sheep all over again. They do their job. Mary and Joseph are still out in the cold. Baby Jesus is still in the feeding trough. In one sense, nothing has changed. And yet everything has. Everything's changed. Because God has done something in the midst of human circumstance, but not dependent upon it. God has transcended what we are and what we are capable of by granting his grace to us super naturally. And so, y'all, I I know myself, and, and I suspect it's true of you too, that it's so very natural for us to put our hope in our circumstances, to drop our anchor there, to seek our joy only in what we see and feel and experience in the here and now. That's that's very natural to us. That's why all our Christmas songs are the same. That's why they're all about the same kind of stuff. It's all tinsel and mistletoe and snowmen and, and trees and lights and presents and warm fires and figgy pudding, whatever that is. That's what our Christmas songs talk about because that's the kind of stuff we like. That's what I want Christmas to be. Stuff I can see and smell and hear and touch. But remember what John said? The word of life has been manifested to us. 
We have seen him. We've touched him. We've beheld his glory. And therefore we proclaim him to you that you might have fellowship, not only with us, but also with him. I've heard another pastor say it like this, the ideal has become real at Christmas. The ideal has become real. The ideal has entered into our reality. God himself has come into the midst of all our circumstances, not to improve upon them necessarily, but to give us a hope that transcends them. Y'all, it was the same Jesus who was born in a lowly manger, obscure, unseen, unsanitary. The same Jesus carried a rugged cross on which he bled and died for us. God deliberately chooses the lowest rung of the ladder, the lowest of all circumstances, to bring us good news of great joy. That we by faith may know Christ, be forgiven of our sins, and enjoy eternal fellowship with him. And so my hope today, just like last week, I said we ought to be more like Mary, faithful, humble, obedient, accepting. Well, let's again take a cue from this group of nobodies. Let's respond today like the shepherds did. Why don't we? With urgency, with awe, with worship, with a heart to share what we've received and experienced by God's grace. Because by faith in Christ, we are saved, and that's not for us a Christmas wish. That is a certain and everlasting hope. Let's pray. Father, I'm asking for us this morning that uh, as we face a super familiar story that we would resist all temptation to read it and hear it um, as old news. I pray, Lord, that you help us to, to fight against any, any lack of awe. And instead, Lord, I pray that we would feel this morning how we ought to feel. That we would feel the amazement. That we would feel the the, uh, the urgency. And Lord, that we we would respond in worship as we reflect on how great your love truly is. Father, where we are weak and lost and sinful, where we are so prone to to see only what's right in front of our face, only what, what, what occupies this present moment, I pray, Lord, for a hope and a joy, a promise that transcends it all. Jesus Christ, who has entered in, to give us good news of great joy for all the people. Father, will you encourage us this morning 
as we uh, reflect on our circumstances, Lord, whether they be presently very safe and comfortable and wonderful. But more likely, Lord, there's at least for us a hint of melancholy, of stress, of disappointment, of brokenness, of regret, of fear, because we're human. Father, I pray right in the middle of where we sit, of of all that we are, Father, um, we need an anchor for our souls. We need something. We need someone able to truly rescue us out of all darkness and bring us into marvelous light. We need a hope that extends beyond the present moment. We need a hope that does not depend on our efforts. Thank you, Lord, that we have it all in Jesus. Help us to see, Lord, this precious baby in the manger who took on weakness, who took on flesh, that we might be saved. What a joy, what a gift. Thank you, Lord. Let us worship you as you deserve in light of all of this. In Christ's name, amen.